Okay, so my guest today is Sandra Wachter. Sandra is a lawyer and postdoctoral researcher in data ethics and algorithms at the Oxford Internet Institute. She's also a research fellow at the Alan Turing Institute in London. Her research focuses on the legal and ethical implications of big data, AI, and robotics, as well as governmental surveillance, predictive policing, and human rights online. Her current work deals with the ethical design of algorithms, including the development of standards and methods to ensure the fairness, accountability, transparency, interpretability, and group privacy in complex algorithmic systems. Uh, Welcome to the show, Sandra. Thank you very much for having me. So, Sandra, I've invited you on the show today to discuss some of the recent work you've been doing on automated decision-making and the right to explanation. Now, this is work that you've been doing largely in light of the forthcoming EU-wide general data protection regulation, which is due to come into force in, in May of 2018. But obviously, this work also has more general ethical and political significance in light of you know, the increased amount of algorithmic decision-making in the, the current era. So we're going to be focusing on two of the recent papers that you've written on this topic in particular. First one, called Why a Right to Explanation of Automated Decision-Making Does Not Exist in the GDPR, which is written with uh, Brent Mittelstadt and Luciano Floridi. And also a second paper called Counterfactual Explanations Without Opening the Black Box, which was written with uh, Brent Mittelstadt and the other person is Chris uh, Russell. So some of what we're going to be talking about is a little bit technical, but in order to make our discussion comprehensible to the general listener, I thought we would divide our conversation up into three main segments. The first of all, part will be broadly about why we might want a right to explanation in the first place, why that's an important idea in the present era. The second part will look at your arguments in relation to the general data protection regulation and the claim that it doesn't contain a right to an explanation. And then finally, we'll look at your proposal for counterfactual explanations as a way of, of resolving problems around algorithmic transparency. Okay, so let's start with the first segment on why we might want to write to explanation in the first place. So your arguments focus on the explanation of automated decision-making. Maybe you could start just by giving us um, an explanation of what an automated decision is. So could you give an example, perhaps, of what this is? Um, Yes, so um, algorithmic decision-making or AI-based decision-making in general is increasing across various sectors. Pretty much every decision that could have could be done by a human can now be done by an algorithm. So the question of whether you should get a loan, whether you should get promoted, invited to an interview, admitted to university, whether you should be granted parole, or whether you have to go to prison, in fact, all of those decisions are now being deferred more and more to algorithms. And the problem with that is that algorithms and algorithmic systems or AI-based systems, they are inherently opaque. They're difficult to understand and hard to scrutinize, which has a problem with accountability. Because if I make a very important decision about you, whether you should be granted parole, whether you should get a loan, and I cannot understand the reasoning behind this decision, that poses the question if this decision can actually be fair or accountable because because I don't understand the underlying reasoning of those decision-making processes. And therefore, um, we see increasing calls around the world of making decisions explainable in order to increase accountability. Yeah, maybe just briefly we could talk about what, what the sources of that opacity in algorithmic decision-making are. So is, is this because the systems themselves are inherently opaque or is it because they are protected by... You know, secrecy laws. Like, what's the, what accounts for that opacity? 
Yes, it has multiple factors. In fact, you can think of an algorithm as a very simple decision tree model that just executes predefined rules that a human decided upon. So it's just an if-then statement. If you have that, you and it's a it's a it's a it's an easy model. You can understand what's happening there. So therefore, you would actually be able to understand why a certain decision was made. However, with those simple algorithms, there are barriers to transparency because a lot of those software is actually protected by trade secrets or intellectual property rights. So if you actually want to understand how the system works, um, people who deploy those systems are hesitant to disclose that. In addition to the trade secret problem, we see that more and more complex algorithmic systems are now being used that have machine learning capabilities. So they don't follow a predetermined set of rules. They learn the rules by themselves. They have a training state of that and learn certain patterns that are not comprehensible to the human brain. And this challenges the, the problem of transparency on a different level now, because very often even the people who develop those systems don't understand how those systems work. So in addition to the trade secret problem, there comes the inherent nature of complex machine learning systems that are just very hard to understand in the first place. Yeah, so there, there are multiple different sources of, of opacity. Now, I mean, the way you've outlined it there makes algorithmic decision-making sound quite bad, but why, why are people motivated to use algorithmic decision-making processes? Like, what's, what's the rationale or justification for using them? Yeah, there are multiple things that show that algorithmic decision-making or AI-based decision-making bears massive good potential. So, for example, the, the fact that algorithms can see patterns that humans are not able to see is a very, very good thing. For example, in health for drug discovery or clinical trials, because they say see they see certain components in molecules, for example, and can come up with new drugs that a human would not consider. Um, at the same time, they are cost efficient and time efficient because an algorithm, as opposed to a human person, does not get tired, um, is um, yeah, and can just execute those things throughout the day, doesn't need to go on holiday and all of that. And the other thing is very consistent. So we see, for example, that human decision-making can vary based on biases, prejudice, on the mood, for example. There has been a very interesting example, for example, the judges that are hungry um, before lunch are much stricter in their judgments than they are after lunch, right? So this would not happen with an algorithm. An algorithm would make consistently the same decision, and therefore it could have potential to make fairer decisions. So we see an increase of the usage of algorithms based on these properties. Yeah, um, sorry. It's just interesting that you gave that judge's example because um, I was just reading a paper before this. It's more of a correspondence letter in the uh, proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences, which casts doubt on that particular finding as to whether um, the influence was as strong as was originally claimed. But nonetheless, I mean, I take the general point about um, problems with biases and inconsistencies in human decision-making, and one of the potential advantages of algorithmic decision-making could be that it uh, overcomes these, these problems. Um, if people are interested, the very first podcast I did in this series with, with, was with a guy called Tal Zarsky, who outlined the argument in, in favor of that idea. Um, let's move on, though, to focus kind of primarily on this idea of a right to explanation. So you, you mentioned the, the just the call for a right to explanation is based around the concerns around the opacity of 
algorithmic decision-making. So what should a write-to explanation give us? I mean, what's, what's the function or role of an explanation? Yeah, so I think that's, that's the problem of the term explanation in general. And I think in general, with all the calls around AI governance, we call for transparency, accountability, and fairness, but we really don't define those terms at all. And we see the same problem with explanation. There has There's some kind of understanding that the reasoning of the decision-making should be explained to you in order to increase accountability, but what exactly should be explained to you is very open for discussion. And so we try to, to take a step back from this discussion and actually look from it from the perspective of potential affected parties. That means that it's the person that applies to a loan applies to a job. Look at it from this perspective and see what is it that I actually want to know about the system or about the decision-making process. Currently, when people talk about explanation, they talk about understanding the internal logic of an algorithm um, in order to increase accountability. This is a very sensible approach and interpretability has massive value, but I doubt that this is exactly the thing that an individual would actually like to know when they apply for a job. So we took a bit of a different perspective with our counterfactual paper and thought about three different reasons why you want to have an explanation. The first is you just want to know why a decision has been made in the way it was made. The second is if you get an ex uh, if you get a decision, you might want to challenge it because you feel like that you have been um, unfairly treated or that the data hasn't been accurate or whatever. If you feel like you want to challenge the decision, you want to have some kind of explanation of what happened in the decision-making process. And the third would be um, to understand what needs to change to get desired results in the future, because it might just be that I apply for a job and the whole decision-making process was lawful and transparent. And the reason why I did not get the job was, for example, because my reference letters weren't good enough or my grades weren't good enough. That doesn't mean I want to challenge the decision, but I still want to know what is it that I need to change to possibly get the job in the future. So we looked at this from this perspective and proposed those three possible goals for algorithmic explanations. As you point out, a problem here around discussions of transparency and accountability is that they are often vague as to what they require. And I mean, you could imagine a system where we release the source code to every algorithm to somebody who's affected by the decisions made on foot of that algorithm, but that would be relatively useless and incomprehensible to most people. So it wouldn't fulfill that goal of, of transparency or accountability. Whereas focusing on, on what the person affected by the decision really wants seems like a more fruitful or productive way of thinking about it. Now, another thing that you talk about in your work is the distinction between different kinds of explanations that could be given to a person. So you talk about a distinction between ex-ante and ex-post explanations, as well as the difference between explanations of how a system functions versus explanations of a specific decision. So maybe you could outline the, those distinctions for us. Yes. Um, so we came up with this distinction um, because we felt that this is inherent in the current framework. Um, so, but it quite generally, if you think about explanations, not just why you want to have them, but what is it that you actually could explain, two things would be very sensible. 
One is I explain to you how the system works in general, and one is I give you the underlying reasons that led um, to my decision making. So, for example, if I apply for a job, I could tell uh, my future employee, well, I'm using an algorithm or a decision tree or a neural net. I'm going to use your personal data to evaluate if you are a successful candidate for that post or if I apply for a loan, I'm going to calculate the likelihood for you on defaulting on that loan. So I just give you a description of what I will do with your data and what's the goal of the data processing. Well, if I don't get the job and if I don't get the loan, I might want to have an, an additional, maybe, explanation why my specific case was handled as it was. So I want to know what are the um, reasons, what was the reasoning in my specific case for my decision? Why did I, did, why didn't I get the job? Was it my grades? Was it my reference letters? Was my income too low to get? Uh, was my income too low to get the loan? All that kind of stuff. So I want to have like an individual level explanation of how and how my case was handled. And I think those things are very distinct uh, distinctive. Um, Explanations can also be given um, before and after decisions have been made. I think this correlates quite nicely with system functionality and individual level decision because when I start communicating with a human, um, I obviously can also can only explain to that person how my system works in general because I have not made the decision yet. So I would come in for an interview and say, okay, I'm going to run your data for an algorithm now. Um, this is an ex-ante explanation of the system functionality. Then I run the whole analysis. And after the algorithm made the decision, I could have an ex-post explanation as well. An ex-post explanation could either be, again, about the system because I could still again explain to you how the system works in general but more importantly after the fact I could also give you an explanation of how your specific case was handled. Yeah so the, the in the ex ante phase you can only kind of explain the general system functionality but in the ex post phase you can explain both the system functionality and the grounds for the specific decision so you, you can get both possibilities there. Now this becomes important when we look at the GDPR in a moment and the right to explanation. Just one final thing, because this comes up a lot in the discussions of, of the GDPR, there's a distinction drawn between uh, data controllers and data subjects. This is language that's familiar to people who are familiar with the legislation, but for those of us who aren't, and what, what's the distinction there between a, a subject and a controller? Yes, so a data controller as defined in the legal framework is anyone, a natural person, that handles personal identifiable data of a data subject. And a data subject is any human being, um, according to the law, any resident in the European Union. That means a data controller is just the person that handles or process or collects or evaluates your data. And the data subject is the person whose, whose data is being collected, evaluated, and assessed. Yeah, so I mean, our discussion here is primarily about data subjects being afforded a right to an explanation of decisions that are made on foot of data that is collected by them. And the in-law, I guess, usually the people who are tasked with that or who have the duty to, to provide that explanation would be the data controllers, or at least they would be the obvious first instance or first person to um, satisfy that right. Okay, so I think we've set up enough here about you know what 
why people might be interested in the right to explanation, what the rationale behind it is. Let's turn now to focus on the law and the changes to the legal system in the European Union. So the GDPR is a big new regulation. Um, it's got a lot of background to it. Maybe you could just explain to us what it is and what it replaces in the European legal system, yes. and also why it's important. Um, so yes, the, the GDPR, the, the new European data protection regulation that will come into force um, as of next year, um, is the biggest overhaul in data protection over the last 20 years. It will replace the current legal framework that we had in place, that was the Data Protection Directive, um, and will now have increased um, data protection and transparency rights for data subjects. So um, 20 years ago, the European Union enforced the Data Protection Directive, and the directive was so to say, a general framework that was applicable to all member states, and then the member states were tasked to um, issue new laws to implement those rules which have been set by the European Union. So the problem here was that we have very fragmented standard because, for example, the UK interpreted um, the, the directive differently than the Germans did, for example. So we had over 20 years various levels of, of um, um, data protection standards. Now with the new regulation, that's a quite it's, it's a bit different because the regulation does not need to be implemented by the member states. That framework will apply to all member states equally. So we will have a harmonized data protection and algorithm transparency um, safeguards across Europe. So that's one of the, the biggest changes. Um, the other thing that is new and very important is that, as opposed to a lot of uh, provisions in the old framework, the GDPR actually has now a lot of fines attached to it. That means in, in, um, in cases where data controllers are not in compliance with European law, there are high, high fines that can be levied. So up until 4% to the annual turnover of a company. So that's a lot of money and that could you know, um, even hurt big, big companies. So it's not a small fraction anymore. And I guess the, the third thing that is very important is that um, the GDPR, even though it only applies to the member states directly, has also implications for countries outside the European Union, because um, the data protection law will apply to any country that wants to offer goods and services on the European market or processes um, data of European residents or wants to have some kind of relationship with a member state where data exchange happens. So if I want to exchange data with somebody, um, the outside countries would need to adhere to the same data protection standards. So the implications of the framework are wide ranging even beyond the borders of the European Union. Yeah, so I mean, it's a massive overhaul of the legal system around data protection, which harmonizes the rule book effectively for data controllers and now there's a lot in the GDPR and we're only going to focus on a narrow portion of it although it's still reasonably substantive which deals with the right to explanation of automated decision making. So you mentioned in the paper you wrote why there is no right to explanation that there are maybe three main sections or segments of the GDPR which could ground a potential right to explanation. Could you, you know, briefly outline what those segments or sections are and um, the contents of them. 
Yes. So let's focus on the, the legally binding text first. Um, the most prominent provision in the GDPR is Article 22. And Article 22... Uh, regulates automated decision-making in general. It's a general prohibition that means that um, automated decision-making, if it is solely automated, that means if there is no human in the loop, and if the decision has um, legal or a significant effects for data subject, should be prohibited unless, and then the exemptions kick in. So in general, automated decision-making that has important effects for people should be prohibited unless the data subject consents to it, or it's necessary for the performance of a contract between the data subject and the data controller, or there's member states that allow that. So in those contexts, automated decision-making is allowed, but there are additional safeguards that have to be in place in order to make this decision-making lawful. And the legally binding safeguards are, if a decision is being issued to me, I will have the right to contest this decision, I will have my a right to express my view and to obtain human intervention. So these are the three um, safeguards that will be guaranteed. There is no doubt about that. There are also recitals in the in, in the GDPR. So recitals themselves, they are not legally binding and they're not enforceable. They are more or less a guideline on how to interpret ambiguous language in the legally binding text. So they cannot establish a separate right and they cannot contradict the legally binding text. But if you have something in the legally binding text that needs further interpretation, you would consult the recitals. Well, so the, the recital that informs Article 22 is Recital 71. And here in the recital, it says that in addition to the safeguards that I just mentioned, contesting decisions, obtaining human intervention and expressing your views, you should also have the right to explanation. So this provision has an interesting background because during the trilogue negotiations, so this was the negotiations between um, the European Parliament and the Council and the Commission who drafted that together, the European Parliament saw that the right to explanation is only in the non-binding provision and proposed to move it to the legally binding text. But that was not adopted in the end. So I had the feeling that there was some hesitance from European legislators to make that right actually enforceable. And the second thing is, even though recitals offer guidance on how to interpret um, ambiguous language, in that case, there is no ambiguous language because um, it is stated that the data controllers has at least, and that's um, the minimum standard, has at least to give human intervention contesting decisions and expressing new views. So this is the minimum standard. That does not mean you can't do more if you want to, but if you ask in the question, do you have a subjective, legally enforceable right, without a doubt, to go to court and issue that, I think that's not guaranteed yet because the provision that is legally binding is not ambiguous enough as as it needs more interpretation. And because also in the trial negotiations it was left out, it just shows that the right to explanation was not wished to have the same legal grounding as the other provisions in Article 22. Can I just, yeah, so I'll just uh, jump in here. So, I mean, as you point out in your paper, Article 22 and Recital 71 probably provide the best 
grounds or the best case you can make for the claim that there's a, a right to explanation in the GDPR. And what yeah. you're just saying now is that it doesn't actually provide those grounds at all. I mean, the, there's a couple of other features of Article 22 that I think might become relevant later on, but it's, it's worth flagging or highlighting. One is your point that it has to be a fully automated decision. So it has to be something that doesn't have a human in the loop that's affecting you. So it, it's, a, it's a prohibition on that style of decision making. And then there are safeguards in place um, for other scenarios in which it, it is permitted, such as the consent of the um, person subject to it. And the other thing is that some of the language used within it is it's maybe a little bit vague. Um, I appreciate what you're saying about the non-ambiguity of the section about the right to explanation, or that could be interpreted as, as grounding right to explanation. But there are other parts that are a little bit vague in terms of you know what, what are legal effects and what are significant effects on the on the person. You know, like so, what exactly is falls within the scope of Article 22? Yeah. So th yeah, that that is an excellent point. Um, I think it's now a bit better because the the Article 29 Working Party. Um, that is tasked with interpreting the GDPR has recently issued guidelines on exactly that topic on profiling automated decision making. And um, even though those guidelines are not legally binding, it is an additional way of to interpret the law and give some further indication of what is actually meant um, by the framework. And there is something that I, I find is very good because I was very concerned with the solely automated part because it could effectively mean, well, I'm just going to put, you know, somebody who breathes in the same room when all of a sudden it's not a solely automated decision anymore. And I was kind of afraid that that might happen because, again, during the trilogue negotiations, the European Parliament proposed to amend the text to let the safeguards kick in if an automation, uh, if a decision is solely or predominantly automated and predominantly would allow some human involvement without having the safeguards not apply. But this was taken out again, so I was very scared that this is where it's going to be a very, very narrow interpretation. Now, the Article 29 Working Party has said, well, it still has to be a solely automated decision, but they made very clear that fabricated, as they call it, fabricated human involvement is not good enough to make the safeguards not apply. So it still has to be an algorithm. The final decision has still to be an algorithm, but if you want to gain the system or avoid um, uh, the safeguards, that's not longer possible. Um, with, the, with the second point that you pointed out, and I very much agree with you as well, that it's not really clear what significant and legal effects mean. And we pointed out in the paper, well, significant effects could mean something very subjective, right? If I apply for a job, but I really don't want it, but I'm just trying out of, you know, shooting for the stars, and I don't get it, it doesn't really affect me. If for some reason I actually need that job, and a lot of depends on it, then it can have significant effects. So there's a subjective element of, of it. Or do we think about significant effect as a standard that applies to everyone? And we pointed that out as well. And here, the Article 29 Working Party did something that I actually think is good in general, but probably problematic in practice, because they pointed out significant effects mean from the perspective of the data subject. So if I personally feel significantly affected, that means the decision has significant effects on me. But they kind of um, leverage the burden on the data subject to show that the decision actually had an immense effect on me. 
but it's a good step in the, in the first direction, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because you're wondering, like, what, what do you want to exclude and what do you want to include within the scope of the rule? I mean, obviously, the way in which Facebook program their algorithm on the news feed affects me in a way. It affects the kind of information that I'm presented with. And subjectively, it could be a significant effect. It could upset my psychological well-being. So is that kind of thing included, or is it really more like things that somehow change outcomes in my life in another way? I mean, I'm, so I'm just not sure about what gets included and gets excluded. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure about that either. They give, for example, a very good uh, example in the guidelines that, for example, if you're able to detect that somebody, um, you know, is in, in, in financial need, exploiting that and uh, advertising ads for gaming um, ads, for example, that is something that could significantly affect them. Um, so this is a very subjective thing. The, the other problem that I see is that something that might appear very um, unimportant could actually have major consequences because as you mentioned like news feeds ranking and what you see in the filter bubble is just what is being shown to you but we now know that whatever is being shown to you can have an effect of how elections turn out and that's a significant effect not just for me as an individual but for whole of society so i think it's very hard to measure um how how a certain decision will affect me or others in the future. And I think you might need to think about a different harm taxonomy here um, to make that more explicit. Yeah, so I mean, I guess it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in practice and, and what, what we decide does get included within the scope of that, that right. Um, let's move on just to some of the other provisions within the GDPR and how they might ground a, a right to explanation. So another set of articles that you discuss in the paper are articles 13 and 14. So maybe you could explain what the content of those is and why some people think they might provide a legal basis for a right to explanation. Yes. Um, so article 13 and 14 are the so-called notification duties. That means um, as soon as the data is collected, the data controller has to inform the data subject about certain things. They have to tell you um, the legal grounds for processing, how long they're going to store the data, how, uh, with whom they're going to share the data with, and, and that's the most important part, they also have to tell you about the existence of automated decision making, and in those cases about the logic involved, the significance, and the envisioned consequences. So that has been used as an example that the logic involved part now means that the algorithm or the algorithmic decision has to be explained to you. With the notification duties, and we pointed out in the, in, in the paper, there are two problems. The notification duties kick in as soon as the data is collected, and in fact, it might be even relevant that this information has to be given before data processing even starts. Because if you look, for example, uh, at Article 12.7, it states that the aim of Article 13 and 4 notification duties is to give the data subject a meaningful overview of intended processing activities. So that means something that happens before data processing even starts. 
And as we talked about the ex post and ex ante thing in system functionality and individual decision, well, if I have to tell you about my intentions, I have not really done anything yet. Hence, I can only give you an explanation of how the system works in general, rather than an in-depth explanation of an individual decision. And here again, it says a meaningful overview, which is also not full transparency of the system itself, but rather just, you know, the basics of the algorithm. And the other problem here is that the GDPR explicitly says that all of those notification duties can be possible communicated via icons. So that means with an icon that shows you what's going to happen with your data in form of privacy notices on a web page. Well, that's very far away from full transparency of a system, and it's even further away from an individual level decision. And this is why we don't think that the notification duties will give you an individual level right to explanation. And in addition to that, the notification duties itself are future orientated because it says meaningful information about the logic involved about uh, and the intended consequences. Intended consequence means before the decision is actually made. So we thought that the notification duties don't give you any significant grounds to either fully understand the system because it can be done with icons and it won't give you an in-depth explanation of an individual case because the information has to be provided before the decision has actually been made. Sorry, yeah. so people who have experience going to web pages that give notices of, well, your, you know, your data is being collected and you have to click on a link to provide additional information about how it's being collected or, or used. The suggestion here is that like that kind of notification is sufficient to discharge the duty under those articles, and that would seem to be quite a long way away from a right to explanation as we would understand it intuitively. Yes. Um, and there was the last hope, and I think that was what we pointed out in the paper as well. There was one article where we felt this could actually potentially give you a right for an individual level explanation, because as I just lined out, the information about the logic involved and um, significance and ambition consequences with the notification to have to be provided before decision-making starts. The same provision is also enshrined in Article 15. And Article 15 is the so-called right of access. It has to be said that all those three articles, 13, 14, and 15, are almost identical in wording, and they are, in fact, in identical in wording when it comes to um, the information about the logic involved in mission consequences. However, the big distinction is that Article 15, the right of access, is not bound on any deadlines. So I can go to any data controller at any point of time and say, tell me about the existence of automated decision making, tell me about the logic involved, um, significant consequences. So that means you could actually levy that right of access after you have gotten a decision. And we pointed out, well, that could potentially give you grounds for that. We doubted it, however, because the wording is identical with notification duties. And in fact, the right of access was designed as a counter mechanism to notification duties. That means I should have a right to get that information, even though the data controller might forget to inform me. So I don't have to rely on compliance. 
And the other problem again is that even the right of access talks about the logic involved and the envisioned consequences. It's again future orientated. And then we looked a bit further in previous um, provisions and this right of access and the, the, the right to learn something about the logic involved is something that we actually have had for over 20 years because a similar provision has existed um, under the Data Protection Directive. And then we looked at a lot of um, jurisprudence and, and legal commentary and opinions in, in general. And what we found, how this has been interpreted in the past, that it's a very, very narrow right uh, that basically will only give you some kind of information about how the system works in general. But important features like full disclosure of the algorithm, information to reference groups, all the variables, that has been considered trade secrets. So even in the past, there has been this very strong struggle between um, trade secrets and IP rights and transparency. And since the wording is very similar, we feared that the old jurisprudence and the old views might be transferred now in the future. And the most important thing, and I think that's unfortunately something that we're going to have a problem with, with now is that, as I said, the Article 29 Working Party, who has just issued guidelines on how to interpret that, has explicitly said that Article 15, the right of access, the only hope that we had for a right to explanation, is not designed to give you an explanation of an individual decision. It's only designed to give you some kind of general oversight over data processing. So they effectively killed the right to have explanation and have also lined out that the information that needs to be required um, under the right of access and the notification rules do not differ. It's the same kind of information. So they basically killed the right to explanation in the guidelines. That doesn't mean that jurisprudence couldn't overrule it. It doesn't mean that data controllers cannot give it voluntarily, but it just shows a very strong indication that this is not what the framework did intend. Yeah, so, I mean, that was going to be my next question about whether we have any hope for the future of it being added in or interpreted or inferred, and I guess you're saying there is the, the interpretive guidance that we've been given seems to be foreclosing that possibility. Now, at least when it comes to interpreting the text of the GDPR, there are other ways in which a right to explanation might be created. It might People might go over and above the duties that are stipulated within the GDPR, but the GDPR itself doesn't seem to provide the, the grounding for a right to explanation that we would yes. like. Um, there's also just one other point, and I'm trying to find the language that you use in the article um, to, to explain this, but maybe you could talk about the difference between you know a, a right that's granted to people to... You know whether the, the, this is a duty to provide explanations or whether it's a, a right to contest or, to, or to, to gain access to an explanation after the fact. Like there's a distinction there. I can't remember the language you used to explain it, but the, there's a, a narrowness in the way in which the GDPR sets out this uh, framework for providing information and access to system functionality anyway that would significantly limit any right that would be inferred from the GDPR. 
Yes. Um, so this goes back to the limited scope of Article 22 in general, because let's just assume that there is, in fact, a right to explanation. Let's just say it would actually be legally binding and would be situated with the other legally binding rights of contesting a decision, uh, expressing views, obtaining human intervention. You would only get that right if the automatic process is... Um, if, if the petition-making process is solely automated, so with no human in the loop, we don't actually know how often that applies, and it would be interesting to see how companies actually make the decisions. And the other thing is you would only get it if um, the outcome has legal or significant effects in the first place. So it, it will be, in any case, a very narrow um, room for interpretation. And in general, with the other rights with notification duties that tell you something about um, the logic involved, they can be exempt under many, many circumstances. So, for example, if it's if there's too much effort for the data controller to um, identify you and to give you that information, they don't have to do that. There is Article 23 that has a long list, as long as my arm, to tell you when you don't need to give um, any information about uh, notification or right of access or contesting or anything can be exempt altogether. And there is, of course, the problem that trade secrets are mentioned not only in the recital itself, in Recital 63, but also in, in Article uh, 15 itself, that when you request, for example, a copy of your data to understand what kind of data has been um, evaluated, that must not conflict with the rights of freedoms of others, including trade secrets. Well, so it will be a balancing act, at least, but in worst case, there are so many ways to work around it that it's more like um, a Swiss cheese rather than a significant protection against um, automated decision making. Yeah, I mean, it's an important point that there's a balancing act to be undertaken here, which is inherent in, in the way in which the GDPR operates between the rights of the data controllers to protection over trade secrets and then the rights of the data subjects to explanations. And I guess the suggestion here is that the way in which the balance is be balancing act is being worked out at the moment is it's tipped more in favor of the, the data controllers and their right to protect trade secrets as opposed to the, the right to explanation. Just the, the language that you use in the article that I, I eventually found was um, that there, you know, there are two different ways of interpreting the Article 22 right as either a prohibition or a right to object. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the important distinction, whether it's an obligation not to engage in a certain kind of decision or a right to object to that kind of decision making. And yes. that, that can make a substantive difference. Yes. I mean, luckily, that has been clarified now by the Article 29 Working Party. They said it's a general prohibition. I'm very happy about that. Because if it wasn't, not only would you need to um, object, you would have the burden to object to automated decision making. With a prohibition, you just protect it by default. And that's much better for a data subject, in fact. Um, so that's that, that's a good thing, and I think that um, there's a high chance that this will this, this will be interpreted as a general prohibition rather than that I have to ob object and force the data controller to stop to yes. do that. So the default is set more in favor of the, yeah. the subject in that case, which is a good thing. However, I mean, so the, the general conclusion from this conversation is that there is no explicit right to explanation of specific decisions in the GDPR. 
that there might be some entitlement to ex-ante information, but it's probably of a limited type, and there seems to be significant protection of, of trade secrets among data controllers. But, I mean, if we move beyond the GDPR itself to, like, what, what kind of model or system could we implement that gives people the explanations that they want and yet does, at the same time, balance the trade secrets of data controllers? Yeah. You so have a proposal for a counterfactual system of explanation. So maybe you could outline what that proposal is. Yeah. So, so we had a general feeling because we um, did understand that there's a bit of, you know, backlash against explanations in the first place. So it's, it's not legally binding. Even if it was, it would only apply in very limited cases. And as we said, um, data controllers, they have an inherent interest not to disclose their intellectual property rights or trade secrets or too much information, for example, about the algorithm could contain training data and then they would infringe on the privacy of others. And of course, there's always um, the point that you could manipulate and game the system if there's too much transparency. And um, even if you can offer explanation, they might be completely incomprehensible to an individual and don't get them what they want anyway. So uh, we did understand all those concerns, but nonetheless, we felt that that's um, not good enough if we start letting algorithms make very important decisions about us. And this is where we thought maybe we need to define explanations differently because we looked at um, the current machine learning literature and when they talk about explanation, they want to understand how an algorithm works. We want to understand it, but probably uh, more from the perspective that they want to improve their systems or do want to debug basically systems. So that's why they want to explain that. Whereas, for example, the legal community, uh, when they talk about explanations, it's about increasing accountability, but it's also about understanding the algorithm in order to increase accountability. Well, we said, okay, if that's not technically feasible, that would mean either an effective ban on those things, or you would need to think about explanations in a different way. And that's what we did, because I honestly believe that the full source code is not the thing that you want when you didn't get that job. You want to know why. And this is where we start thinking about offer an explanation that do not require to understand the logic, the internal logic of a system. It does not require to open the black box. And this is where the counterfactuals um, idea came up. So a counterfactual explanation, and counterfactual is something that you can easily compute. And the very good thing about counterfactuals is you can compute them in very complex systems. So even if you have like neural nets, for example, you could still um, compute counterfactuals. And what a counterfactual explanation would do is um, it would tell you what would need to change to get the desired result in the future. So it would mean, okay, you didn't get that job. And they ask the question, what kind of variables would need to change for you in order to get that job? And we defined that as finding the small, small possible changes to the current decision to tell you something about the decision-making process. So this was a bit technical, but I'll give you an example for that. A counterfactual explanation in, for example, in loan applications would mean, 
um, you have been denied a loan because your income was 30,000 pounds. If it had been 45,000 pounds, you'd have been offered the loan. So that's very easy to understand. Um, you understand what was important. You understand the important variables on which the decision depended upon, namely income. So you know what was some kind of, what was the logic behind that? Yeah, income played a role in making those decisions. And you do understand why you didn't get it because it was too low. So that gives you enough information to satisfy the three possible goals that we lined out. It would, first of all, help you to understand how a decision was made, you know, it was based on income. It would help you to contest the decision because if your income was actually 45,000 pounds, not 30,000 pounds, you could then go back and say, well, this is actually not true. Can you rerun this again? And the third would be, even if your income is too low and even if you do understand how it works, you still get some indication of what would need to change in the future to reapply for a yeah, loan. Yeah, so I, I, I want to try and clarify the proposal. So I think the example is, is useful, and there are a lot of technical details in the paper for people who are interested in explaining how you could actually compute counterfactual explanations. So I'll, I'll include a link to the paper in the show notes for the podcast for people who want that, that technical information. But I, there are a couple of things I wasn't entirely clear on, and this is probably more a reflection on my lack of, of technical understanding. So if you imagine an, an algorithmic decision to deny somebody a loan, it's probably going to be based on multiple different variables or factors. So income level might be one of them, you know, address where you've lived, um, could be another, um, you know, past financial data in general, past experience in paying back loans. All these things could be added into the mix to determine whether a loan should be granted to an individual. Now, the counterfactual explanation, as you described in the paper, is giving you information about the smallest possible changes you need to reach a different outcome. So here we've, the example you sketched, you're just giving them information about income. That, so that was the relevant variable. So if you changed that variable, you would have got a yeah. positive outcome. I mean, uh, we're not providing them with any other information about how the system works, so we're not saying it, it also includes all these other variables, and if these were changed in different ways, you might have also reached a different possible outcome. We're just giving them the one thing, the minimal thing that they need to know in order to change the outcome. No, that, no that's not what, we, what we're doing at all. We, we actually line this out very clearly that you can give multiple counterfactual explanations. So you could give an explanation of if your income had been, again, this was just one example that we, we used there, but we have others as well. If your income would have been higher, you would have gotten the loan one counterfactual. You could have a counterfactual that says, if your income had been different and your address had been different, a whole counterfactual, another one. You could have a couple of them, you could say, Either your, low, either your income changes or your postcode changes or your marital status changes or your profession changes, and then you have multiple of those explanation, counterfactual explanations that you can then offer to an individual to make sense of it. It's not about the, the minimal changes, like the, the smallest possible thing, but just the closeness of various um, variables that could change. So you could offer them a, a whole set um, in order to, to let them understand what happened in the decision-making process, not just one variable. But it tells you about the most important variables that had an effect on the, on the decision. So yeah, I think that kind of 
helps me to understand. So then if you're giving them multiple different variables that, that could be changed in different ways to reach different outcomes, I mean, that would help them to probably gain a, a greater insight into how the system works and like why, why they were affected in a particular way and also then grounds for contestation or um, how to change their conduct in the future. Just uh, you know, a couple of questions then towards the end about criticisms of this. I mean, is this really going to provide a kind of robust or politically and ethically adequate right to explanation? So one thing that might affect this in particular is what happens if the algorithm is updating and changing and how it weighs the different variables? This would seem to maybe limit the practical value of being given the kind of factual explanation. Um, yeah, that, that's a very fair point. Um, so there are different kinds of, of, of algorithm decision making. Some of them ch change very quickly, and some of them have very slow changing models because of regulatory um, provisions. Um, so what you could do is either use it for slow changing models, or you could artificially ch uh, freeze that model when you make that decision and then just rerun it with that again. Um, but even if you don't have a system that is frozen or slow changing, it still gives you a very good understanding of what happened there and potentially contest the decision uh, at court, for example. Because it's, for example, a counterfactual explanation could also be, amongst other things, because you could have there, uh, multiple uh, counterfactual explanations, it could be if you had been white, you would have been offered the loan. Well, so that's not something you can change, but it gives you an indication that the race had something to do with the decision-making process. That does not mean that the decision is unlawful discriminatory, but it could give you an indication that race had at least a role to play in it and then investigate further if you need it. It won't tell you anything about the overall fairness of that system because um, it's just about a one individual explanation and therefore we need further research and more robust methods to make sure that those decision-making processes are fair overall. But in a limited sense, it at least gives you an indication that race had played a factor in making that decision, whether or not this is lawful or not, that's up. Well, well, that's something that will, you know, uh, need to be evaluated after that. But at least it gives you, it gives you something we could look at. Yeah. So I mean, it's not providing like total transparency or accountability for this, how these systems work, which is a separate issue. This, you're, as you clarify and outline in the the paper itself, you're really just focusing on the individual who's affected by the decision and giving them some information that is useful for, to them and satisfies or fulfills the the three functions of an explanation that you outlined earlier um, on. Yeah, I mean, the interpretability, so really understanding um, the system, really knowing what's going on, that's a massively important field and that needs to be pursued. It's just an interim solution that tries to balance um, competing interests, and especially in light of the new GDPR, because we don't know what's going to happen there, it could be a very feasible way of doing that. Uh, the other question is, if we actually have systems that are not fully explainable, how we deal with that and how we deploy them, but that's a different question. Um, it's just something that should serve as an interim solution that could be very helpful for individuals um, to pursue the purposes. I mean, so how, how likely do you think it is that this solution will be pursued? Do you see it as uh, something that's going to be 
become a reality in the near future, or are there political or technical impediments to it? I mean, I guess you got, you discussed the technical impediments in the in the paper. Yeah. There, there aren't many, but are there other impediments to this becoming a reality? Um, I at the moment I I actually don't think so. From a technical perspective, it's it can be done with a highly complex system, so the technical barrier is not really there. The problem that the explanation is not meaningful is also out of the window because you know, giving an explanation of yeah, uh, income and race and postcode have been factored into the decision. That's a very easily understandable problem. The last thing is if you uh, gaming the system or intellectual property rights and all of that, um, I think it's less likely to infringe on trade secrets and intellectual property rights and offer less ground to gaming the system because you're only releasing minimal information. You don't give them full transparency to the source code or the training data set or anything. So just give um, a fraction that is very meaningful for the individual, but probably not good enough to actually do damage either by gaming or by stealing trade secrets. Yeah, it's probably also worth noting that you can find lots of misinformation online about how algorithmic decision-making processes work. You know, there are lots of websites dedicated to explaining to people how they think credit scoring systems work and what they might need to change in order to change yeah. an outcome, uh, which probably isn't very well-vetted or useful information. Um, so there's plenty of that out there as is. Um, okay, I think those were all the questions that I had. I mean, I don't know if I have any final kind of wrapping up question to pursue on the right to explanation. Uh, I think the, 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 the only overall message of, of both those papers is that if you want to deploy systems that have so much promise, and I, I think they really do, we should try to think outside the box, maybe, in order to design them in a way that they are um, useful for society. Um, and I think the counterfactual paper is, 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 is the first step forward there because we just try to think outside what has been done before and try not to be held back by previous restraints and just think about differently. And I really hope that especially the counterfactual paper will encourage researchers to think more about accountability in general and come up with similar or different models of, of providing effective remedies for um, parties that feel that they have been treated, um, for example, discriminatory. Yeah, and actually I think one of the important messages of that paper is about bridging the gap between the way in which explainability or interpretability is discussed in different fields. Yes. Yeah, I guess that that's one of the, um, the, the, the things like where I see myself going in the next years and what I think research should do. It would, should really try to um, bridge the gaps between different disciplines because on the counterfactual paper, for example, so I was the lawyer, um, Brent Middleset was the ethicist, and um, Chris Russell is the machine learning person. So we had three different disciplines working together from the ethical question of what explanation and knowledge means in the first place, me thinking about how that fits actually in the legal framework, and then working with a technician to actually see if what we want from a legal and ethical perspective is actually technically feasible and with limited limitations are and when, what can be done. So we try to start a dialogue from um, starting from what's legally required to what's ethically desired and to what's technically feasible. Yeah, it's actually a very good model for how academics should pursue in, um, inquiries in this area because it's, yeah, it's working from the kind of 
practical consequences or legal purposes back to the technical feasibility rather than working from technical feasibility to legal consequences, which is often the way around that, that people pursue this. Um, okay, Sandra, uh, thank you for uh, joining me for this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me.